Amen. Please be seated. Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 21. We are to the last verses of this chapter, starting at verse 22 down to verse 34, which ends the chapter. Remember the backdrop of the story that we are looking at now. Abraham had moved now from uh, up north after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know for sure that Abraham ever heard if Lot survived. So uh, there are many reasons why he may have moved south, uh, maybe to be done with that memory for some time. And he was a nomad in Canaan. Although the land was promised to him, he had no ownership of any portion of that land. And he was free to move. And they picked up their tents and the hundreds and hundreds of people who were dependent upon Abraham as their leader of the household, um, of his whole operation. And they moved down to the extreme south of Israel, um, then, of course, still known as Canaan. And that southern area was occupied by the Philistines who were led by Abimelech, this powerful king who even had an army. We see that in the text before us. And so they move south, and there he is. Um, again, the ups and downs of Abraham, we notice that even though God had shown himself faithful all the time, uh, he still lies to Abimelech when he gets there to try to save himself, not trusting in God at that moment. And he even causes Abimelech great harm because Abimelech takes Sarah, thinking that Sarah was only his sister. Well, we remember God again uh, delivers that situation, delivers everyone out of that situation, and Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. The promised son finally comes, but there's still more to the promise, and this story we have before us begins to show God's fulfillment of yet more of his promises. Here as I read God's word, this is Genesis 21, 22 down to verse 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore the place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, as we approach your word, please give us a keen sensitivity about the importance of what we read. This is from you, and you want us to know and apply what we read. 
O Lord, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please help us to grow in your grace by the instruction that we gain from your Holy Scriptures. I pray this in Christ. Amen. Now maybe, uh, like me, when you read chapter 21, uh, some of the story is kind of oddly placed. We see the birth of Isaac, and that makes sense. It tells us the fulfillment of that portion, that major portion of God's promise to Abraham. But the stuff with Abimelech, it just seems superfluous a little bit anyways. But as you dig in deep, you find that this is very important information, uh, evidence of God's full and total fulfillment of his promises and his intention to fulfill all his promises to Abraham. Remember, he promised to make Abraham a great nation. What does it take to be a nation? Well, first and foremost, people. And here at age 90 and 100, he gives Isaac finally. So now Abraham could be sure that God is a promise-keeping God. Now, he'd seen God do many things. But to have his wife of 90 years be able to have a baby, this proves that God supernaturally is working to fulfill the promise. And everybody watching can see that's true. But there's another portion that you need to be a nation. You have to have a land to live in. There's three things that make up a nation generally. There's people, there's land, and there's law. And the law will come. But the people are just now being identified. Abraham has Isaac, and now he's about to show Abraham that he will be faithful to give his posterity land also. In this whole episode in mixture and in confrontation with Abimelech has to do with God declaring that he will do a work that's a generational work to bring the land to his posterity, just as he has promised. God's promises never fail, even though Abraham had gone to the south now as a nomadic traveler. Wherever he goes, the promises of God attend him because God is with him. God doesn't leave him wherever he goes. And we see this play out in this episode once more. It's true and it's universal. God's promises never fail any of his children and you are his children. If you have faith in Christ, you rest in him, you're his adopted sons and daughters, and he goes with you wherever you go. And his promises never fail, no matter where you may find yourself. Maybe you've had moments in your life where you felt like you were totally alone and God was not there, but God was there, and God keeps his promises to you. He never fails. I've had a few of those moments in my own life. They were brief, but there are moments of almost terror for a little bit, like I'm all alone. In one such moment, it was about 12 years ago, this exact season, I always remember it when the fall happens. I had knee surgery, and it was a, an operation that was scheduled, and it was going to be longer than the average knee surgery. I had torn all four of the ligaments in my knee. Three of them had to be reconstructed. So it was a two-hour-plus surgery, which is long for a knee surgery. And so as I was going in, I was with my family in the waiting room and such, and then when you're, they're preparing you, but then there's this time, and any of you have who, and many in our church have to go through consistent medical procedures like this where you're away from everybody you know, they take you into a room where you're waiting and they're preparing you. You don't know anybody that's in that room. And they know, you know the seriousness of what's going to happen. And I grant you, a knee surgery is not nearly as serious as so many other procedures that have happened to our brothers and sisters here. But for me, it was not a, a common experience. And I had two things that had built up my anxiety a bit. And one of them was... When I was in college, I had knee surgery on my other knee, and I had an adverse reaction to the anesthesia. Right before I was about to go out under, my, I stopped breathing. And I remember not being able to breathe, and I felt like I was dying. And then next thing I knew it, I woke up. 
And I asked the doctors about it after, and no one seemed to really remember the duress I was under. I felt like no one really believed what I was saying, but I remember that happening. So now I'm, going, I'm wheeling in, and they're telling me about what's about to happen. They're going to put me under. The other thing that I did wrong that contributed to my anxiety was that I had watched a YouTube video of this exact surgery. Now, in truth, one of my sons pulled it up on the, Dad, come here and look at this. Now, I know we have orthopedic people in our church, and they were at the first service, so I'd tone it down a little bit. Those people are butchers. You ought to see what they do to you. When they reconstruct all your ligaments, they have to make sure your knee stretches. And if they, they use ligaments from cadavers to put into your knee, and I had three ligament structures that had to be rebuilt, they sew it together, then they crank on your leg where you're asleep. And that's YouTube it. It's true. So I'm thinking of all this. It's, it's just flooding me. And there's no one, and I'm a talk therapist, not your therapy. I just ther- my therapy is I talk out what's going on right at the moment. And I didn't think anyone was listening to me. And it was really honestly starting to make me feel anxious in a way I didn't recall. When people tell me they've had panic attacks or this, I I sort of appreciated that more. And really the thing that really gripped me for a moment was that I was alone, that nobody nobody there um, knew me. And I couldn't share that I felt alone. And I was a little bit terrified, to be honest with you. And it dawned on me when I preach all the time about God being with us, that I had to draw upon that. And there was an old saint who told me many times, when you're scared, Repeat Joshua 1.9, and it's, there are words that are repeated in other places, in Joshua and other portions of Scripture. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's very simple, but the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I recall saying that in my mind and feeling a calm about the truth that God was with me, even when I felt like I was alone and even felt abandoned, even though that wasn't true. And here's the point, and that's a small, small example of much bigger senses of anxiety we can have like this. Wherever you find yourself in this world, God is with you and his promises still apply to you there, wherever that is. Wherever you find yourself in life, whatever stage of life, situation of life, phase of life, God is with you there and his promises still apply. Now you may say, but I've been disobedient and I've been following him. I haven't been walking with him. Do you think Abraham was doing all that just right all the time? We know it's not true. But yet a pagan who got lied to by Abraham, still sees Abraham and says, God's with you. Whatever circumstances surround you, child of God, God is with you, he hasn't left you, and his promises still apply. Maybe you're new to the area and you are feeling as though God is distant from you, why am I here? Maybe new to the church, trying to connect, or you've been here a while but withdrawn, I feel alone. Maybe you're in a challenging season of your life somehow. Some change has come upon you and your family or you personally. Perhaps you or someone you love are in the middle of a health crisis and you're anxious about this. You feel alone. A financial strain could be upon you. Relationship breach could have happened. Where is God now? Well, we know he is here with us personally, carefully, and his promises still apply to you. Abraham is truly a model for us all. He receives the unmerited favor of God that works faith in him to lay hold of the promises and obey God in light of what he has spawned in him. He has many ups and many downs. We've been watching this with him throughout these 20 plus chapters. He finds himself in a foreign place, unknown dangers all around, moving around and about in that place. He tries to handle stuff his own way and forgets the promises of God. Yet God reminds him that his hand is upon him and that he will uphold him, even with all the different circumstances that arise. 
here in the southern region of Canaan, the southernmost part of Israel, the land of the fierce Philistines, Abraham has settled for a time now that the birth of Isaac has finally happened. I want you to see with me in Abraham's life how it is that God is with him, and I will extend this to show he is with his people always. And then I want you to see how even in the smallest ways, God will remind us that he's a promise-keeping God. You see this in Abraham's episode with Abimelech and a simple well that was dug. And finally, I want you to see is the, the grand finale of Abraham's interchange here. What does he do in light of this reminder of God's being with him and God's promise? He worships him. He pauses in where Abraham is at his clearest, where we are at our clearest, is when we are worshiping God. We'll see this unfold in the passage. Look first with me at verse 22 down to verse 24. You'll see how God is with Abraham. And this is true of God's presence with his people for all time. It's a special presence here with Abraham and the patriarchs, but we'll see that uh, there is something of this that we all experience as believers. It says in verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, this is a formidable king in the southern region, he has his own general of an army, they said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Think of all that Abimelech had witnessed by this point. First of all, he saw uh, what happened with those women in Philistia who couldn't have children as a result of his taking Sarah. Then God himself says to Abimelech, Abraham's a prophet. You'll need to go to him and have him bless you. Then he sees a 90-year-old woman have a baby. And he recognizes the hand of God is upon Abraham. So he does the smart thing. Now he could wipe, normally he could just wipe them out or he can enslave them, do whatever he wants to do. He has the power. But he knows something's different here. And that's kind of the tone behind what he says next. Look at verse 23. After saying God is with you in all that you do, now Abraham, therefore swear to me here by God, he's acknowledging Abraham's God, that you will not deal falsely with me, because you, you, know, you just did. Please don't do that again. Nor will you do that with my descendants or with my posterity. But I, as I have kindly dealt with you, so you deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Don't bring any more curse here. Let's make an agreement. Let's make a covenant, a contract. Let's promise each other this. And Abraham responds, I will swear. I'll enter that covenant. Abraham will take that covenant. God goes wherever Abraham goes. Abimelech can see this in Abraham. He's witnessed all the things he has seen already. Verse 22, God is with you, in all that you do, it's obvious. God is with you is a repetitive theme in the Old Testament, especially as God unfolds his story of redemption leading up to Christ. We find it repeated with certain individuals, especially, because God is sustaining them or protecting them and promoting them so that they can continue the coming of the seed, the Messiah. But I want you to bear with me here because it grows into something more personal for all of us. First, though, we see in Genesis 39, uh, among other places, but maybe the most pronounced that people seem to remember, when Joseph was taken because his brother sold him into slavery, he finds himself in the house of Potiphar, who happens to be an Egyptian, an Egyptian ruler. 
It says in Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. The success he enjoyed was because of God being with him. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw, even a pagan sees this, he saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. We know that that Egyptian master was smart. He recognized the hand of God upon Joseph and utilized him in his household and for his rule. Similar to what we see with Abimelech as he refers to Abraham. Later, King David, so many years later, Joseph is still in the realm of the patriarchs. David is a thousand years after the patriarchs. We sometimes think these, years are, these people are close together, but um, 2000 A.D., Abraham, 1000 A.D., David. And Samuel records this of David. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. The effect of God's hand upon his people, especially in this phase of God's redemptive history, is to have people respect that person because God's with them, to honor, even follow what they say. Later, King Hezekiah, some generations after David, and the Lord was with Hezekiah. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the kings of Assyria and would not serve them. Why? Because God was with him. In Chronicles, one of the kings after Hezekiah, one of the few good kings left, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. The Lord was with him. This means God protects. This means God grants success. This means that he grants favor, uh, the favor of others to you when God is with you. Some will fear. Even if those do oppose, he gives protection. He may even use you to bless others. This is often what it means. Now, lest we think it's just relegated to the quote-unquote big names of the Old Testament, the main figures, I want you to see how personal this starts to get for every believer. Because if the proposition I presented is true, God's promises never fail as children, no matter where we find ourselves, that God is with us, it must come to us somewhere. Well, in the year 700 AD, the prophet Isaiah gives a prophecy to the people of Israel who were struggling and straining to see God's hand of provision any longer. It was because of their sin. But this prophecy, 714 in Isaiah, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Jesus is pronounced or announced in Matthew 1, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet 700 years before. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, which means God with us. Matthew makes sure with the wider audience that he explains what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. So this phrase, God with us, Abimelech says to Abraham, I see that God is with you. God with us. God with you. And now Jesus, God with us. Christ comes with us. With who? He's come to save his people from their sins. He's, his peop- he's with his people. Later, Jesus assures us of his constant presence. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to ascend into heaven. Well, how can he be with us then? He says in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit so that every one of you have God with you. As the Spirit indwells you, he makes you alive unto Christ. 
He makes you alive under the truths of his word. You know even when you're alone, God is with you. You know even when you're sinning, God is with you. That conviction you feel over sin is not just conscience. For the believer, that's the Holy Spirit saying, child of God, this is not you. Matthew 28, just before Jesus ascends into heaven. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a daunting thing. Go to foreign places and bring this message of the gospel. How can we possibly do this? Furthermore, you should teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, Jesus says. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So God promises you that he is with you. He is with us, and his promises never fail because he is with us. And it doesn't matter where you find yourself, he being with you assures those promises will come to pass. Abimelech sees this in Abraham, and it's still true for us today. I want you to see verse 25 to 32. It may be subtle at first glance, and I've been giving hints along the way of what the big um, revealed promise is or the fulfilled promise is. But we see God keeping one of his main promises, starting to fulfill it right before Abraham's eyes. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well. Now hold up. Abimelech has just said, I want to make a covenant with you, an agreement that you won't be false to me, you won't mistreat me or my posterity. I want a covenant. He says, I do, I will do that. But I got to bring something up, Abimelech. That's, that's the tone. I, I gotta, this has been this ongoing thing. We've had a well that my people dug dug down who knows how far. It's difficult to dig. We have to have water for livestock and people. You can't be in a place without a well. And your people keep coming over and saying it's theirs. That's what unfolds. Look what it says. Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. I'll make a covenant with you, but let's get something straight about this. I got to have my well back. Abimelech says, we don't know if he's telling the truth here or just I don't know who's done this. I'm not sure who it is. No one told me about it. It's first I've heard about it. You could just see this unfolding at a human level. So Abraham uses the occasion of Abimelech requesting a covenant of peace to say, hey, I got to have water here. So what's happening here providentially is God is molding the situation, a common haggling over a problem they're having, to give Abraham land, land in Canaan, land in a place with an enemy that could take him out, humanly speaking. But as soon as you have a well somewhere that's yours, you have a stake in that land. Yes, Isaiah's the big promise fulfilled, a son born to a 90-year-old woman for sure. But there has to be land for him to be a nation. And this is the start. In this haggling here, Abraham calls for a covenant that will solidify for all time to the point that we're still reading about it right now. He's going to give him a deposit for this peace but he's also going to have some ewe lamb set apart. And I think that the wording here can be interpreted this way. Look at the passage. You remember the covenant ceremony that Abraham had with God where they split the animals? Only God went through because God made it a unilateral covenant. It was all on him. Here will be a more traditional covenant where you take animals and split them apart and then you walk through them together symbolizing we both agree to the terms of the covenant and if either one of us strays, then what happened to those animals? that will happen to us. That's the seriousness of the contract, the covenant. Now take that as we read verse 27 to 20 to 30. Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Okay, now the covenant. Abraham set apart 
seven ewe lambs of the flock. So they're set apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you set apart? Uh, Put apart is the other way it could be interpreted. He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand. That this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. So as they cut this covenant, also is solidified the ownership of the well being Abraham. Abraham dug it, it's his. We're going to say this out loud in front of everybody and agree formally. Therefore, verse 31, that place was called Beersheba because they're both both of them swore an oath. Now, Beersheba means the well of oath or the well of the seven, the seven animals, uh, the well of where the covenant was made. This is where Abraham received his land and promised to be a blessing to Abimelech going forward. Abraham now had legal right to the well, his first piece of land in Canaan. The promise or the physical proof of God's promise establishing him in the land was this simple well. The arrival of Isaac, huge, but there still has to be land, and God is starting now to deliver on that promise. Now, I want to point out to you something about wells in antiquity. You know when this country was settled, the earliest settlements happened around water, uh, lakes or rivers. You still can see that in the old towns of America are in lakes and rivers, in uh, lakes, rivers, uh, even on the shore. You got to have water. Got to have water. And this is even more so in these days. You had to have a place that you could dig a well, get down to the water table, and sustain life. A well is more than just water. It's a symbol of community and of living. That's what is on display here. It reminds everyone of Abraham's claim to life in that area. It's one thing to say, well, let Abraham live there, but if he has to depend on others for that water, that living water, how would you ever think he lasts there? He wouldn't. We could wait them out. As long as there is a well there, there can be life. People can live there. Animals can live there. And it becomes a landmark to something special that God has done. Now, we notice this throughout the Bible. There are special wells that become symbolic of God's provision. Um, This is in the southern portion of Canaan. Eventually, Jacob builds a well that further establishes their presence in the promised land. It becomes a, a mark of ancient faithfulness, God's ancient faithfulness to the people of Israel. Even in their times where they're in captivity and come back, Jacob's well becomes the obvious the obvious picture of God's sustenance. Wells are important, and here Abraham gets his own. If you think of the most famous story about a well in the Bible, it really tells you the importance of this symbolism. It was in John chapter 14 when Jesus himself went to a well. He had to pass through Samaria. He came to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Everyone has to show up at the well at some point in the town. It's about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water from that well. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It's the well that he provided for the people. He's asking her for a drink from it. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and of who it was who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, 
You have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water and welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, as any of us would, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. The picture of the well is not to be overlooked in this passage before us. It's not cursory. The story may have seemed a little bit misplaced when we read it, this issue with Abimelech and a well they're arguing over, but now it starts to make more sense in the fullness of the picture. God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham, first Isaac and now a well and some land, both pictures in some way of Christ to come. Isaac, that son, that well who pictures life, eternal life, with living water. What of all of this now? Look at all that Abraham has been through at this point, all that God is building up. What should the right response for us, the children of God, who acknowledge his presence, his faithfulness to promises, what should we do? I would say it's to do exactly what you did this morning. You came to worship with other people who recognize that God is with us, that he's faithful to his promise, and to hear his promises again because we forget them. That's why you came. That's why... Abraham does what he does. Look at this response to these things. Verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now, why is this significant? Well, in antiquity, there was a pagan cult where they would worship trees, and they had them planted in in all sorts of groves. This is a situation where Abraham's taking a tree that's not native to the south of Canaan, from what we know. He plants it there, and then he gives glory to the true and living God, not the tree. The tree is meant to be a permanent marker of Abraham's God's commitment to him and the promises that were made to him. And he calls upon the name of God, and he uses a very important title, the everlasting God. Now, I want to point out to you that when we are worshiping, when the people of God are worshiping, this is where we are our most clear-headed, right at this moment, because our focus is on the great promise-keeping God and what he has done for us in our acknowledgement of who he is, the everlasting God. In fact, this is what we see always happen in Abraham's life. For all his ups and downs, which we all can appreciate, back in Genesis chapter 12, when God first calls him, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, the Be- with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar at that time, not a tree, built an altar. And he called upon the name of the Lord. When we call upon the name of the Lord, that is worship. That's why when we come into his house, there's a call to worship. So we call upon the name of the Lord. That's why we come to this place on a regular basis. Times of worship like this, it's where we're at our greatest clarity about God, about life, about this fleeting world, and about the world to come. That's why we've got to be here regularly, because we need to call upon the name of the Lord. That's our response to our promise-keeping God. Abraham called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Let's not move past this title. It's another name now given to God. 
It's an attribute of God that's captured. The everlasting God would be in opposition to the false invented gods of Canaan. This is the everlasting God. It comes from Jehovah Ol Alam. Olam, secret or hidden in its root meaning. But Boyce points out that the Jews used the word when they wanted to denote something that had an indefinite beginning or an indefinite ending. That's why our translation calls it the everlasting God. Abraham called there on the name of the Lord. Who? The everlasting God. There's only one of those. It refers to God's eternal and unchanging nature. Though things will change in this land, things will change in their lives, people will come and go, but the everlasting God, who I'm planting this tree in memory of, he always will be. He witnessed in his life the steadiness of God. All the change around him, but God does not change. When he's moved to worship, he calls on the name of the Lord and he gives credit to God for who he is, the everlasting God. This is why, again, Isaiah, 1,300 years later, 1,300 years after these words are spoken by Abraham, penned by Moses, 1,300 years later, the prophet Isaiah says to a people who had largely forgotten their God and his attributes. And the prophet says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. See, they were confused. They were weary. They were looking at Babylon and what Babylon... Have you not heard that your God is the everlasting God? That's what worship does. It brings us back to who our God is, whatever happened during the week or today. The everlasting God is your God, and he is with you, and he keeps all his promises. This is what Abraham is learning, and we learn afresh every time we respond to God in worship. Abraham, once again, is renewing covenant with God through worship. That's what covenant renewal is. We come in every Lord's Day to collectively renew covenant by proclaiming that God's prom- God is true. God has brought us to himself through Christ. His promises are real, and we say them again, and we give him praise for who he is. And he feeds us. He sustains us. He builds us up. This is covenant renewal. It's remembrance of what God has done with his means to build our faith up. Worship, that's the response of Abraham to the special favor that God had shown him. The planting of the tree. The planting of the tree was meant to be a generational message. So every one of Abraham's sons and grandsons and granddaughters and everyone that would come after would know this tree points to the everlasting nature of God. It was a bit of assurance for Abraham that, hey, I want the next generation to know who this promise-keeping God is. I hope they haven't forgotten him. But look to this tree because it's going to remind you. It says in verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The tree is in the boundaries of a foreign pagan land. Now it's claim for God. It was to be permanent than the altars that were built before. It was to outlast him. He brings the presence of God into a new land. 
You know, I was thinking about these kinds of things, and I realized to some degree, something like a tree, it's a bit token, it's not substantial in, in God's presence there or anything like that. It's a reminder that calls us to it. But we do this all the time in our lives as believers. We have commemorative things that we do and look upon, places that are special to us that draw us to a time of faithfulness, God's faithfulness. I think this very sanctuary was built with that in mind. You could build any kind of building, but the point here was, let's build something that calls everybody to account in this room first and then says to the rest of the community, we think what happens here um, points people to God. Now, the accountability is, is that we are called to be faithful to that message, to come and worship Him and call out the name of the everlasting God, not ourselves. It should be about Him and be very, very clear about the timeless message of the gospel that every generation will need. So the hope and the prayer is that by doing some of these things, even putting a big pulpit like this here, will call to account the generations that come after to make sure that what comes from this place does honor the true and living God. And may it be so that five pastors from now, this pulpit will look more wore out, but the same gospel should be going forward from it. If not, may God wipe it all out. Destroy the whole place. But it's meant to have a generational impact that generations after us, that your great-grandkids will be baptized here. That's the point. That's what Abraham hopes for as he's in the south of Canaan. He plants a tree. He worships God. And we know as it unfolds that this becomes his headquarters. It becomes Isaac's headquarters. Then it expands. And all of Israel becomes the place where God obviously moves his people to have a land to fulfill his promise to bring Messiah. This is the point that will finally unfold. The promises of God will never fail any of you no matter where you find yourself. God promises you salvation in Christ. He promises you the forgiveness of sins through Christ. He promises access to his Father through Christ. God promises peace for those who are in Jesus. Jesus said, believe in him and you'll never die. He will not forsake you ever. He'll even help you out of temptation. He promises that. He promises to give strength to you when you're weary, when you're weak. He'll give you strength. He has definite plans for you. They're not plans to harm you, but they're actually plans to give you a future and a hope. The Lord will go before you, and he'll be with you throughout your life. He will provide for your needs, and as you seek his kingdom, all the things you need will be added. And those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. Jesus said that he will give us rest for our weary souls. These are the promises of God to you as children. Wherever you go, they'll remain true. And if you lack wisdom, you can ask him for it, and he'll give it to you. He promises. God assures you that he hears your prayers, every one of those prayers, and he cares. Jesus has promised that he will come again for us. He promises and assures us of a place in the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly Canaan. He promises to finish the good work that he has begun in you, and he promises that his kingdom will come. So wherever you find yourself in the world, God is with you, and his promises still apply. Wherever you find yourself in life, He is with you, and his promises still apply. Whatever circumstances surround you, God is with you. He has not left you, and his promises still apply. In his classic work called The Mystery of Providence, the Puritan John Flavel wrote, It is the duty of the saints, especially in times of straits, to reflect upon the performances of providence for them in all the states and through all the stages of their lives. This is what's developing in Abraham's life, and it will come to the ultimate test in the next chapter. One author said, God who made you 
made the galaxies. And the God who made the galaxies knows the fears of your heart, the events of your life, and the details of your future. Why are we here today, brothers and sisters? Why are we in this place with these people around us? Applying verse 33 of our our text to us, the people of God came to this place on God's appointed day and here called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Amen. Let's respond to the word of God preached by turning to a very appropriate hymn. This is a hymn based on Psalm 90, calling us to remember all the ways in which our God has been faithful to us in the past, so we know in the future we can count on him. This is hymn number 30. Let's stand together and sing our God, our help in ages past, verses 1 through 4, as the elders and ushers come to prepare the table.